Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents The Cauldron by Zeno, read by Al Murray. Chapter 22. Mocock was thinking about Lydon, already a prisoner of war, perhaps already dead. They'd got into the aid post a few minutes before the temporary truce granted by the Germans for the handing over of the wounded. Mocock wondered when he would see Lydon again, if he would ever see him again. Alone in the shattered room, he looked out at the grey beginning of the ninth day. The early light and the fires in the burning houses distorted the scene in front of him, a scene which had changed only in detail during the three days the platoon had been in its present positions. Mocock had not slept at all during the night. The slight sounds made by the Germans as they worked their way up the road, moving from one unoccupied house to the next, had been enough to prevent him from even dozing. He had no idea how close the nearest Germans were to him, but he suspected that they were in many of the houses in the short street, perhaps even in that on the other side of the road to his left. With Lydon gone, the battle held no further interest for Mocock. A slight movement in one of the gardens attracted his attention. He turned his head slowly and watched the place dispassionately. A small bush shook, he glimpsed a German helmet, a figure showed, withdrew, reappeared and began stealthily to slide over the low dividing wall. When the German was nearly over, Mocock shot him, 
wondering how the man could be such a fool as to think he could move undetected within 25 yards of his enemy and at the early hour when all troops stood to. The German jerked slightly and stopped his forward shift. He remained where he was on the wall, his stomach resting on it, his head and shoulders towards Mokok, his hips and legs out of sight. Mokok opened and closed the breech of his rifle, laid it down and shifted back behind the light machine gun. He watched the body for some minutes. It must have been a good shot to kill the German instantly. The range was very short, but the drifting half-light made accurate shooting difficult. Perhaps he had not killed the German after all. Perhaps he was only wounded and lying doggo. Perhaps he had missed him altogether. Some of Mokok's lack of interest evaporated, and he watched the body more closely. Had it moved, or was it settling as the blood cooled? The grey surge had moved, but so had the bush behind it. Perhaps the wind had stirred both but it might have been the German's legs moving the bush. Mocock moved again and picking up his rifle he fired another carefully aimed shot. This time he aimed at the back of the German's neck with the short hair showed above the hanging helmet. Mocock had time to see the body twitch like a flea-bitten dog before the German machine gun opened up through a window in the house opposite him, 15 yards away. Mocock crouched on the floor behind the table. He had thrown himself off the chair and onto the ground in the second his ears had heard the first sound, and his eyes caught the muzzle flash of the gun. It was impossible to believe that they had missed him. He heard a bullet strike metal, and as he pulled the LMG down with him, he felt it jump in his hand. Slightly to his left, the enemy would be firing at an angle across his front. The German gunner put one more burst into the room, and Mocock saw and heard the plaster as it dropped from the wall. He heard Summers and Woodley's gun open fire from the house above him, and he started to crawl to the door. He would have to look for another room. He felt the pain in his bicep before he moved more than a few feet. He let go the carrying handle of his gun and slipped his left hand through the front of his open smock. His inquiring fingers slid between his shirt and his white Saxon skin, up over the point of his shoulder and slowly down the outside of his upper arm. He felt the blood, not much, but sufficient to wet the skin and guide his fingertips to the small slit which gave under their pressure. It wasn't too bad. It had missed a bone. He'd be all right, not like Dell with half his back missing. He crawled through the door, dragging his gun with him. Outside, he headed for the stairs, his ears straining as he tried to locate the direction from which a sudden new firing had broken out. Blake and Bridgman were watching a small gap in the trees just to the east of the captured hospital. For two hours since first light, German infantry had been making their way in pairs through to the big hotel where more of the wounded lay. They had had all night to get as many men as they wanted into the building under cover of darkness, and yet they had chosen to do it in daylight. The watching men could not understand the reason for the Germans' action. They had posted Adams in the roof where he had a clear view of the gap, and he had knocked out a number of the enemy, and yet they still came on. Every 15 minutes or so, another pair would appear for a few seconds as they dashed across the open space. Adams would fire a single shot aimed through his telescopic sights and then Ewing would put a burst from his Bren gun into the bushes ahead of where the running men had disappeared. Usually there was only one. Adams was a good shot. Blake pulled at Bridgman's arm and pointed to where a German and a British soldier had appeared side by side in the hotel grounds. The British soldier held up a piece of white sheeting on which a bright red cross had been roughly marked. The platoon commander and the sergeant watched the two soldiers. They had turned to each other and appeared to be arguing The smock-clad figure of the airborne man seemed the more authoritative. He cut the other off with a gesture of his hand, and turning back, he waved at someone out of sight of the hotel grounds. A British jeep jerked out from a cluster of small buildings and made its way onto the road. Bridgman looked through his binoculars. An airborne major was driving, and alongside him sat a German soldier, the butt of his rifle resting on the deck of the vehicle. 
Behind them, two blanket-covered stretcher cases lay side by side. The jeep reached the road and turned to the north, towards the watching men. It halted in full view of them, and Bridgman wondered how many other eyes were fixed on the stationary jeep. Another movement attracted his attention, and he swung his glasses to the right. A ragged file of figures came into view, limping and supporting each other as they stumbled along. They were evacuating the walking wounded, but this was no organised truce. British and German MOs were acting on their own initiative. As the line of men reached it, the jeep started to move slowly up the road with the two soldiers, the British and the German, walking ahead of it, the Red Cross held between them. The last of the line reached the road and a German ambulance followed it, bringing up the rear. Bridgman watched the jeep crawl past the house he was in. He recognised the Major as an MO from one of the field ambulances. He was unshaven and his face was drawn, but he did not look as tense and as apprehensive as the German soldier by his side. Alan studied the halting line of men, here and there picking out a face he knew, and then the last of them was passed and only the German ambulance had still to come. It had dropped back and halted some little way from the end of the shuffling line, unable to move at the slow pace of the wounded men. Now it moved forward again, this time in jerks as if learner-driven. Outside the window from which the two men watched, it stopped again as if to allow the broken-gapped file to get farther ahead. So suddenly that Bridgman and Blake were taken completely by surprise, armed Germans leaped from the back of the ambulance onto the road surface. They bunched badly for a moment and then moved forward towards the watching men. Bridgman swung his sten up without moving his feet and he felt Blake move slightly away from him to give them both more room. In the instant, his finger closed round the trigger and before the sounds of his own shots reached him, a burst from Ewing's Bren registered in Bridgman's ears. It was all over so quickly that it was difficult to believe that for a few seconds the road had seemed to be filled with the enemy. Three of them lay where they had fallen, bunched together in death, each man touching another. Two had thrown themselves into a ditch on the other side of the road, one of them with a convulsive jerk, which might have been the desperation of his bid for safety, or perhaps the impact of lead in his back. One German stood in the open gate to the garden. He stood weaponless, his rifle thrown down. His left hand rested on his helmet, and in his right he clutched a dirty white handkerchief, which he shook nervously rather than waved at the British soldiers. He stepped warily towards the window, his eyes frightened and near despair. Blake felt Bridgman move, and turning his head quickly, he saw that the platoon commander had raised his stent to his shoulder and was taking deliberate aim at the man five yards away from him and unarmed. Blake moved instinctively without a thought. He grabbed Bridgman by the shoulder and pushed him, hard. Bridgman staggered under the thrust of the sergeant's hand, and his head swung round, his face expressing an anger Blake had never seen on it before. Before he could speak, the German was at the window, climbing in, his mouth open, uttering the plaintive whines of a puppy, which uses its very helplessness as a weapon against aggression. Blake watched the rage go from Bridgman's face, not suddenly, as an impulsive emotion comes and passes, but slowly, a bit at a time, the result of a conscious effort to control. Take him to headquarters. Perhaps they've enough men to spare to guard prisoners. Blake gestured with his sten towards the door, and the German moved quickly. As he followed the prisoner, Blake looked back. Bridgman had taken a grenade from his pouch and had drawn the pin. He was looking towards the ditch on the far side of the road. Marsden crawled through one of the holes he had blown through the dividing wall which separated the semi-detached houses. He sat on the dirty, boot-stained coverlet of the bed and opened the linen bandoliers he had brought with him. He stacked the five round clips of 303 and wondered about how he would distribute them. In another bedroom, Laverty watched the open ground to the south. His arm wound had stiffened up, his preoccupation with the nagging pain and discomfort of it making him less of an asset than he should have been. Marsden decided to replace him on the brain with Cassidy. As Cassidy heard Marsden's instructions, he watched the house on the other side of the road. In the rooms round the corner, 
Out of his sight, Germans were facing Gorman and his men, only the width of the road between them. Sooner or later, they would discover that Marsden's section was only 20 yards from them on their flank. His present position held out more interesting possibilities than the one Laverty occupied, but that in itself was not a good arguing point. He would have to go. He heard Marsden move behind him towards the door, heard the corporal's boots hesitate, and then his voice again. Were you here when John Murray and McEwen bought it? What happened? Cassidy wondered why Marsden wanted to know. They were dead. What did it matter? But perhaps they would all be dead soon, and if they were, his telling wouldn't matter either. McEwen shot John. He could feel Marsden's eyes on the back of his head, and he wished he had denied knowledge of the incident. He could have said that he was in another room, and that it was all over when he got to them. Marsden stood at the door, his body tensed in anticipation. I guessed that, but how? And who shot McEwen? How? That's easy. But why? Who knows why? I don't. I don't suppose they knew either. They were so different. Perhaps that's why. Cassidy was looking at the houses on the other side of the road, but he was seeing the two NCOs' faces as they stood only a few paces apart, all their hatred for each other pouring out from them, from quiet, taciturn John Murray in a stream of violent, uninterrupted abuse, and from McEwen, rage and fear which had burned and glowed to white heat as he heard the facade of his courage torn to shreds. But what happened? Marsden's voice was sharp, insistent. There was always bad blood between them, but you know that. It started in the Ram Hotel in Newark. Yes, I know, they were out drinking together and McEwen started looking for trouble. Wanted to start a fight with some Remy chaps or something and expected John to back him up. When he wouldn't, McEwen called him a coward, but that's old hat. Why should it be finished now? What sparked it all off? Cassidy made a sound. Half sigh, half cynical chuckle. There's always a final act, a last straw, but who knows what has gone before. I suppose Bridgman could be blamed for some of it. Bridgman? It's difficult to put your finger on it, but somehow he never gave any of the dicey jobs to John. He didn't doubt his guts, of course. Nobody did except McEwen. I suppose he just didn't think John was as good as the others, and John couldn't understand why. I suppose he brooded. And in the end, all his discontent was directed against the only man who had ever doubted him aloud. John had to prove that he was as good as any of them, and not only that, he had to prove something else. He reckoned that when the cards were on the table, McEwen would be the one who was yellow. And of course... He was right. McEwen was all right in any scrap that wasn't final. He could take punishment, even a bad beating, but the idea that he could be killed knocked all the guts out of him. Silence grew in the room. At last, Cassidy looked round. Marsden was standing in the door, nodding as he took in what he'd heard. Then his head snapped up and he looked at Cassidy. Right, thanks for the trailer. Now let's have the main feature. What happened? Cassidy turned back to the street and the story came from him like a dull recitation of something burned into his brain forever. Bridgman went to stop the panther that McEwen should have stopped. John had started to bull McEwen out before Bridgman went and after he'd gone he kept it up. He baited him. He just went on baiting him. He was trying to force McEwen to admit that he had no guts. John meant it to shut McEwen's mouth for good. He was going to make McEwen so conscious of his own cowardice that he'd never be critical of anyone else but he misjudged. Either McEwen had a bit more guts than John thought he had, or a bit less. He just stood there, looking at John. It seemed to go on forever. John called him everything he could lay his tongue to. You could see McEwen's face keep changing. You could see him begin to believe that what John was saying was true, and his eyes would shift about looking at anything but John. Then he wouldn't believe it. For a second or two, he'd convince himself that John was wrong, and when that happened, he'd glare at him, and you could almost see him stealing himself to do something. 
but each time John's words just beat him down. That is, each time except the last. When he did move, it was so fast that I didn't see his sten come up. One second McEwen was standing there taking everything John said, the next John was going down. Christ, he moved quickly. Marsden was looking at the back of Cassidy's head, but his imagination was picturing the scene. He could see the whole thing, all except the end. But McEwen? Who shot McEwen? Not John. He could never have done it. He had a burst in his chest. This time Cassidy's head came right round, and smiling quietly he looked at Marsden. John was a good section commander. Not all that intelligent, but sound. I liked him. We're in a bad way at the moment, bloody bad. I suppose the textbooks would say that every man, every round helps, but I don't think McEwen had anything to give us. Even now, I think we're better off without him. Don't you? For a moment, Marsden stared at Casty, his lips tightening in a grin that held no humour. Casty raised an eyebrow. Hadn't you better go and get Laverty? he asked. Marsden nodded slowly and without a word went out to tell the Belfast gunner that he was to be separated from his Bren. It was only when he got to the other door and stood looking at Laverty's back that he realised that Murray and Laverty, the two friends, were in the same room. Murray stretched out dead against the wall and his townsman crouching wounded and in pain at the window. We need to take a short break now. I'll see you in a tick. Welcome back to Zeno's The Cauldron. Adams lowered his rifle and watched the German soldier. The man had dropped his rifle, and the hand which had held it was extended in front of his stomach. As his knees buckled slowly, the hand moved hesitantly backwards and forwards, drawn to his wound and yet afraid to confirm it. He broke the fall of his body with his left hand. He squatted back on his heels, his head rolling on his neck, and his face turning blindly about as if seeking the origin of his hurt. He started to get up, his arms beating feebly at the air like a fledgling bird's, but changed his mind or was unable to manage it. He sank back, both hands coming together across his stomach. He threw one appealing glance up through the trees at the sky and then his head dropped forward onto his chest. He remained for a long time kneeling, his hands folded devoutly as if in prayer. Adams watched him till he fell over onto his side, his legs straightening and one arm coming up to cover his face. There was a movement in the trees and two figures emerged, a German and a British. They carried a stretcher between them and laying it down they lifted the wounded man onto it. Before picking it up, the British medical orderly stood to one side of it, facing Adams. His body concealing the movement from his companion, he gave the thumbs-up sign, then turned quickly away and lifted his end of the stretcher. Adams watched the three men disappearing into the trees towards the hospital. The pattern formed earlier was repeating itself. Each man he had shot had been removed almost at once, leaving no evidence to warn those who followed. Adams wondered who the British medical orderly was and if he would ever meet him. Gorman had started to cough as he moved out from the back of the lower of his two houses, and within seconds of the first explosion of air from his chest he was hanging onto a fence, retching like a sick dog. He retched and coughed till the sweat ran down his face in the bile out from his open mouth. The last cough died in his throat, and the last trickle of bile cupped itself behind his lower lip, forming a pool as bitter as defeat. He turned his lip down and spat. He took a hand from the fence and wiped his face, feeling his legs tremble under him as he straightened them. He found the gate and braced himself for the short dash to the upper house. His legs gave him the last of their strength, propelling him forward through the gate. They got him one pace into the open before giving up, leaving him sprawling and splay-legged like a newborn colt. He balanced awkwardly, fighting to stay on his feet, one arm making swimming motions in the air, his mouth opening and closing, biting at the air as if he sought to draw himself along by his teeth. 
Every nerve in his body became alive with apprehension, and his muscles contracted an instinctive armouring of his body against the strike of the bullets which must come from the house on the other side of the road. He felt strength flowing back into his legs as the fear of death recharged them. He knew he would never make the cover of the upper house in time, and the thought of going back to the cover behind him didn't occur to him. He threw himself sideways and down behind the low garden wall, and as he crushed the flowers under his body, he heard the bullets from the German machine gun passing above, where he clung like a limpet to the earth below him and the brickwork against him. He heard one of their own guns reply and lifted his head slowly, raising his face an inch or two from the earth into which it had been pressed. He rolled his eyes up under his brows till he could see the comparative safety of the house beyond where Summers and Woodley were fighting back at the Germans opposite them. Twelve feet to cover. He tried to work out his chances calmly. How long would it take the enemy gunner to swing back onto him if he leaped to his feet and made the dash? If he had the strength to make the dash. He saw the German stick grenade from the corner of his eye, tumbling stick over canister through the air. He followed its flight for what seemed an eternity, his eyes wide and his mouth open. It dropped behind a hunk of brickwork, which had been blown down from the chimney stack, and as it disappeared from sight he knew he had a chance. He buried his face again and waited for the explosion. It came with the whistle and dirt of brickwork, a tremor of the earth and an uplift of his heart as he realised that the brickwork had saved him from the metal death in the canister. As he raised his head again, the second grenade landed in the soft soil, six feet away from him. It was strange to stare with fascinated eyes at the instrument of his own destruction, the smooth round cylinder so different from their own egg-shaped grenades and the plain wooden stick. But that wasn't the way to die, not the way he was capable of dying. To make one desperate effort and run for the cover of the house would be a last fight for life, but a losing one, for he would never make it even if he had twice the time left. He heaved himself up in the second of his decision. He turned his back on the grenade, his head and shoulders above the wall, and he was firing at the Germans in the house when the grenade burst. Their returning bullet struck the front of his head and neck as the shrapnel from the grenade buried itself in his shoulders and loins. Bridgman was giving his orders for a breakout to the river and to the boat Second Army had brought up. He looked at the three men who commanded what was left of his sections, Blake, the only sergeant out of five, Marston, the only corporal out of four, and Summers, one of the three surviving lance corporals. In the bad light of the cellar, their faces were barely recognisable. He could trace no expression on the beard-stubbled faces, but from his intimate knowledge of the men, he knew what he might have seen in a better light. Blake's face would not have changed. His hollowed cheeks and bloodshot eyes were the result of nine days of fighting and sleeplessness. There would be no reaction from him to the news of the division's withdrawal except an acceptance of new orders to be carried out. Marsden would look angrier than usual. He made no allowances. For him, this was the final act of inefficiency and incompetence. He would have found it difficult to specify at whose door the failure of the operation could be laid, but he would be satisfied that they had stuffed the show up somewhere. Summers will be looking weary, cynical and detached. And remember that absolute quiet is essential. Every man must wrap his boots in cloth. It's raining now and the clouds are low. This will help us, but it'll be hard to keep contact. Make sure that every man undoes the tail of his smock so that the man behind can hang on to it. Both us from Second Army are firing star shells to give us the general direction. If we split up, keep between them, they'll be fired to east and west of us. We'll form up at the back of Mr Brown's position in 20 minutes from now. And remember, not a sound. If they guess we're breaking out, they'll be after us. In the darkness, Bridgman overshot his position at the company rendezvous, and only when he came up against Tim Jordan did he realise that his platoon was at the head of the column instead of in the middle. 
Jordan decided quickly and whispered, It's not worth changing, Alan. Stay where you are and I'll get three platoon to close the gap between themselves and one platoon. The seer moved back into the darkness and Alan lay down at the head of his handful of men. Waiting, Alan wondered whether Jordan was right to leave the order of march as it was. Phil Ramsden, with one platoon, was bound to have been briefed as to the best and safest route to the river, while Alan himself had only the vaguest notion of the dispositions on the other side of the perimeter. Jordan came out of the darkness and knelt by Alan's side. Behind him, Alan could pick out two or three shadowy, crouching forms. The CO's whispered words came quickly, but with no trace of urgency. We'll move out in a minute. Pass the word back now. The Sergeant Major will act as a link between you and me. He moved away before Alan could answer him, before he had fully appreciated the significance of the CO's words. Jordan himself was leading his company out. They passed to the north of the Hartenstein Hotel, which had housed divisional headquarters, listening to the crump of shells as they landed in the positions they had vacated only 20 minutes earlier. They turned south on a track between the almost leafless trees, the soft drizzling rain soaking and reviving their deadened flesh. The lightly wounded marched with their platoons, and somewhere to the rear Doc Barber and the REMC orderlies shepherded and helped those too badly hit to be sure of getting out unassisted. In the dark sky, they could pick out the guiding star shells fired by the Second Army guns, and they could hear the sharp exchange of fire, which came from the southwest, where the Poles and a battalion of the 43rd Infantry Division fought to hold the Germans back from the river crossing. The Sergeant Major moved from the CO and his small order group back to where Allen headed the column. His voice came low and clear through the rain. The country's getting closer. I think you'd better close up, sir. Allen spoke over his shoulder and lengthened his pace till he could make out the blurred group of figures ahead of him. As he did so, he saw beyond them the silhouette of a house against the sky, and in the same instant he heard the challenge from the cover of the garden on his left. Halt de va! Alan felt the sergeant major's hand close on his forearm, but even as he felt it, he was reaching down for the German stick grenade stuck in the gaiter on his boot. As he pulled it clear, a German Spandau opened fire from a window in the house in front of them, the bright flash of its muzzle blast illuminating the falling figures of Jordan and his small group. Alan dropped to the wet earth. He unscrewed the base of the stick, pulled the cord, and raising on one knee, he threw the grenade into the garden on his left from where the challenge had come. As he flung himself back on the ground, he sensed the sergeant major dart to the right of the track and into the cover of the trees. The Spandau fired again, a succession of long bursts which cut the air inches above the heads of Alan and the men behind him. Flattened against the earth, Alan eased his stem forward, but before he could raise its barrel, the sergeant major opened fire from the right of the track and Alan saw the flash of the German gun alter as it was switched over to the newer threat. Blake was alongside him now, firing his captured Schmeisser at the windows of the house. Alan called to the section behind him for grenades, and it was Scruffy Butcher who crawled up with them. When they had cleared the house, they regrouped in the cover of the trees and Bridgman counted heads. Apart from the Sergeant Major, he and Blake and the remnants of his section, and in addition Marsden, Casty, Woodley and Summers. He sent Cassidy back along the track to see if he could contact the remainder of the column and turning to the sergeant major lying by his side spoke quickly. They're nearly across the perimeter. This must be as far to the west as they penetrated from the hospital. There can be only a narrow gap between us and the border positions. The sergeant major grunted. The Jerrys will be back. They're using the knights to infiltrate and this house is bang on the escape route from the north. Cassidy rejoined them, dropping on the far side of Bridgman. I couldn't find them, sir. Only Slattery from one platoon and he's dead. He must have copped an unlucky one from the house. I should think Captain Rutherford has taken the company farther round to the west. Bridgman thought quickly. Casty would be right. The orders were to get down to and across the Rhine. Rutherford, Jordan's second in command, would see his first duty as getting the bulk of the company to the river. He turned again to the sergeant major. 
We'll take our own line. We'll go through the trees here. If we go any farther over, we'll attract fire from whoever's holding the west flank. The ground was boggy under the trees, and the rain made it worse. As he made his way cautiously forward, Bridgman thought of the cleared house they'd left behind them, and wondered how long it would remain empty. He thought of Jordan, too. Before leaving the area of the house, they'd turned over the bodies of the small order group, but the COs had not been among them. Bridgman and his party groped their way through the sprawled figures on the mudflats leading down to the river's edge. They found the tail end of the company waiting to embark. Gordon Brown was the last man. Adams listened to the two officers' voices as they spoke quietly together. The Germans were mortaring the mudflats heavily, and he could hear only snatches of their conversation between the almost continuous burst of bombs and the sudden cries of the newly wounded. Jordan made it. Bullets snicked the bridge of his nose and temporarily blinded him. Rolled into a ditch. Got out on his own. Your platoon's embarked. Last of the company. Then Bridgman's voice. House cleared. Right across the escape route. Bastards will be back. Be stopped. Adams shook the arm of the man next to him and heard Summers whisper, What is it? Nothing. I just wondered who it was. What's going to happen now? He couldn't make much of Summers' reply. He seemed to be reciting something about a bridge and Horace or Horatius. There was a sudden lull in the mortaring. A figure crawled out of the night and touched Adam's arm. He heard Blake's voice in his ear. Who's that? Adam, Sergeant. Where's Mr Brown? There, I think, Adam said. Before Blake could move, the figure above where he lay turned round. And as the officer's head came close to their own, Adams could see one end of Brown's moustache silhouetted against the sky. He felt another form move up beside him so that four heads were almost joined, their bodies stretching out like limbs of a starfish. It's Blake, isn't it? Yes, sir. Mr Bridgman asked me to find you. Yes, where is he? He's gone back, sir. Gone back? Gone back where? To the house. He told me to find you and say you would see the rest of his platoon over. Gordon Brown started to swear, a long stream of curses directed at nothing in particular, and then breaking off. Was he alone? No, sir. He took Marsden and Cassidy with him. I offered to go with him, although I didn't want to, but he said no. He just wanted Marsden and Cassidy. He said... Blake stumbled his words, as if not understanding their meaning. He said I was a soldier, and should get the men out and do a soldier's work. What do you think he meant, sir? Adams waited for the officer's reply, hardly breathing in his bewilderment. I don't know, Sergeant. Brown's voice was quiet and sad with the sadness of loss. I should have thought that he was the soldier, and a very dedicated soldier, but but I just don't know what he meant. The fourth head spoke, and Adams realised that it belonged to Summers. So he knows. I didn't think he was that intelligent. What do you mean, Corporal? Brown's voice was sharp. I'm not knocking him, sir. He's dedicated all right. I just didn't think he knew what he was dedicated to. But he must have done. He chose the right Herminius and Lartius. His dedication isn't to soldiering, and nor is this theirs. They are good soldiers, but that's incidental. Their dedication is to death. I think they, he, realised that this might be the last opportunity in the war to find it legitimately. There was a long pause, and Adams heard the chug of a boat's engine, and then Lieutenant Brown's voice. You seem to know a lot about it, Corporal. Do you suffer from the same disease? Of course, sir, but not in quite such a virulent form. There are other and more temporary ways to escape from life when it becomes unbearable. Drink is one of them. The bow of the boat thudded into the bank, and they all stood up. Adams tried not to be too eager, but he was grateful when Blake pushed him forward into the boat. The End